Hello and welcome to Reimagining Capital Projects, a podcast series that explores the impact of innovation and evolving technologies on the capital project infrastructure and wider real estate sectors. I'm your host, Ona Merku, a chartered engineer and PwC digital consultant, and I'm delighted today to be joined by two new guests, Stuart Jefford, an environmental economist and assistant director within our sustainability and climate change team, and George Cobb, group sustainability accountant at the Scottish energy company SSE whose day job is to advise executive management on best value capital expenditure decisions. Welcome to you both guys. Hi. So today we'll be exploring innovative ways to measure societal value in projects and the impact and benefits that they bring. George, you describe your role at SSE as bridging the gap between finance and sustainability. How important is driving value in major programs and what are the typical challenges that a major infrastructure project may face? Driving societal value is is fundamental because that's what our stakeholders are asking us to do. Um, The ability to understand what value is to these stakeholders is really important and being able to balance that within these capital projects is fundamental. Whether or not you're, you're talking to a regulator or an NGO or your exec management or even the capital markets, you need to be able to understand what the boundaries are and be careful not to overclaim or underclaim the benefits. So you want to establish a process of, of trust and transparency, a process where you are able to communicate the value of projects, not just in economic terms, but wider social, environmental, and really working with Stuart's team, that's what we've been able to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I've reinforced George's point. I mean, if you look at the level of ambition in things like the UK's industrial growth strategy or the kind of um, response to the housing demand that we're seeing, it needs, you know, it's going to need infrastructure to be built. And, and obviously the benefits of doing that are pretty self-evident. But I think the challenge comes when um, the inevitable kind of negative aspects um, that often are associated with those things. Um, and those are the things that actually can really stop projects from happening. Um, because you know, it might be that there are planning delays because people are objecting to certain issues. It might be um, that their costs escalate in response to trying to manage some of these things. And actually these things might stop projects going ahead altogether. Um, but the question is when that happens, what, what next? The need hasn't gone away. So those challenges to me sound like a level of uncertainty around some of these pro- programs and, and the delivery of them. Um, and it's interesting you both say that because we recently ran a survey with um, some of our clients um, operating the traditional sort of capital project sectors to gain their views and insights on what they see as the challenges going forward in delivery and in projects in general. Future-proofing the built environment was one of the key themes that came out of this. Um, so George, how do we design and plan for tomorrow? ensuring that we add value and build assets to be resilient to societal change? I think it's first understanding what the future could be. Um, And so there's a lot of technology we're seeing that allows you to gain that greater insight, reduce the risk to, to overall projects. Um, but there's, there's other things, and again, I think probably there's two options. One is, is adopting a modular process, and, and we look at this when we build substations. So we, we future-proof them, we buy extra space, we allow the components to interconnect. So we could connect a wind farm in there, but we could also connect housing development. Alternatively, and again, probably something more bold, is that we don't build for 25 years anymore. We reinvent projects every five years. We're light, we're nimble. We have the ability to reuse materials so that we can build, use a a project, then decommission and start again. But again, it it takes new design. It's refreshing to hear that 
financial and commercial concerns aren't really at the forefront of your thinking there. Um, Stuart, what, what's, what's your view on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about whether it's future-proofing or whether it's about driving value. I think it's all about um, identifying, being able to identify the most material impacts, um, both positive and negative, as early as possible in the design process. And once these have been identified, teams can then decide how to address them. Uh, it might be about enhancing the design um, and challenging the specification of a project, to, to George's point, um, or it might be accepting, actually, that trade-offs are going to need to be made. So what you're saying there to me, though, isn't really that new. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's not new at all. Um, and actually, there are a variety of conventional approaches to doing this um, that are really well tried and tested. Um, but I think traditionally they focused on assessing the purely financial or economic impacts um, or, or things like project delivery risk. Where they do go wider to look at some of these perhaps less um, tangible things, um, things like environmental impacts or, or, or impacts on local communities, the issues are sometimes dealt with in a qualitative way or, or perhaps using non-financial metrics and, and that can make them really difficult actually to factor into decision making. Um, so I think that raises the important an, an important question of how do you compare these sorts of impacts without resorting whether it's explicit or implicit to what kind of amounts to gut feeling. So, so let's take that example. So how would we compare a say major utility project versus a major rail project because both would have sort of have adverse effects on the local community, maybe through increased fees or a, from a visual perspective. So what would your view be on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's um, when considering different types of projects, it's often seen as kind of common sense to understand where and how they each generate value, whether it's positive things like supporting um, the economy um, or whether it's uh, negative impacts like disrupting local businesses through, through the construction process. And then to compare the, the sum of the positive and negative to the financial um, cost of the initial investment. And that's straightforward when these things are already priced by the market um, because they can be readily added up and compared between projects. But where it becomes more difficult is when the drivers of value are less tangible. So what do you mean by less tangible? Well, it's things like um, you know when site traffic perhaps might cause, um, as traffic associated with construction might cause delays to local roads, or it might be that when the, 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 the design has a big visual impact, really affects a, an unsport landscape perhaps, or it might be that um, there are other environmental um, impacts from, from building um, maybe a tunnel through a protected area. And, and for years, governments have measured um, a number of these different impacts um, in a way that can be directly compared to each other. And whether they do that is by measuring them in terms of monetary value through techniques like cost-benefit analysis. Um, and, that, and the benefit of doing that means that they can be compared using a consistent yardstick, if you like, so that they can be more directly compared with each other. How important is this to you from a client perspective, George? It's fundamental. I think it's really just increasing the availability of information. So we've worked with PwC in the past, but having other major construction projects or utility projects or government projects even, using common methodologies is fundamental. One that really helps our, our stakeholders get consistent messages about, about projects, about benefits and about impacts, but also allows my management to, to get comfortable with, with how we should be introducing this. And when we really bring it into decision making is when we look at what mitigation factors we need to do. So, so what you're telling me there is that value for money isn't the only benefit to consider. How do you attribute value to these less tangible aspects of projects? Say, for example, the visual impact a, a railway line might have gone through a valley. So what we've done in the past is that we ask stakeholders. Um, being a, a utility company, we are funded by 
the UK electricity bill pair. So we need to understand their views. And really, when we're out asking them, and we've done surveys with, with PwC, you know, four and a half thousand people we've asked what they view um, is the impact of our, our, our business. What we really want to be doing is, is then building that into the methodologies that we use so that people can see how their views have ultimately informed our final decisions. What's your view, Stuart? How, how do we approach this problem? Well, I mean, I don't think there's a single answer because um, I think it really depends on, on what it is you're trying, what issues are important and therefore what, what the best way of measuring um, them is. And actually, I also don't think it's necessarily all about the number that you get at the end of the process, because it's also about the learning that you get through the process um, so that you can, you know, get better at identifying what's positive and negative, um, be able to consult with stakeholders so that you can validate this and get more information about it, and essentially use, use the best available evidence um, and research to back up your analysis. And I guess many people listening to this will probably recognise this as just good practice. So I suppose you could say that, that one of the advantages of this kind of approach is that it does actually drive best practice um, to, be, to be employed in projects. So building further on this discussion, um, George, what advantage has this approach to looking at project value and impact through many lenses given your organisation? Um, has it helped any of your programmes reduce reputational risk or delivery risk or even improve from an investment decision perspective? I think trust. I think that's really where we're seeing the biggest gains. Our, our stakeholders are now seeing that they have a, a voice and that when they tell us something, that we take that information and we build that into our decisions. So our submarine cables is, is a very good project that we've, we've done that extensively on. We've also been working with the regulators, um, one economic, one environmental. So again, often sit at different sides of the table. But what we're doing with this valuation work from non-financial elements is we're bringing them together. We're, we're giving this common language um, as Stuart says, you know, we use a, a, a common yardstick and we, we put everything in pounds, but that's not necessarily to, to sell it. It's, it's just about giving it in the value that is recognised. We report engineering costs or project costs or delay costs in pounds. So why wouldn't we put non-financials in pounds too? So interesting. So Stuart, how do you put a value to this? Well, um, as I said before, I think it depends on the situation. But if we take a, you know, an example like uh, visual impact, so a landscape, imagine you know, there's a, an unsport landscape and there is um, a piece of infrastructure that needs to be built through that landscape. Um, there, are there are different ways that you can do this. Um, but what, what we did with the work we did with SSC and George um, was basically we, um, first of all, got really clear about the change that was happening in the landscape. So really characterised what was being built um, and, and the change that it was having. And then we um, basically asked a load of people how much they'd be willing to pay to avoid that change. Um, it's kind of that simple, but actually in doing it, obviously there's more complexity. Uh, we, we surveyed, I think, um, in total about 5,500 people across three different um, detailed surveys to really explore the different changes that were happening and then to try and get the evidence that we needed to put a, a reliable and credible um, value on that impact. Did it have a positive impact, George? Was there many like, initial objections to the programme? There was, uh, initially, there were, there were 17,000 objections. Um, that project that Stuart was talking about was really us, us cutting our teeth, you know, using a live project to, to value um, these non-financial impacts. And really that, that's one of the key, key points is that we were uncertain if this was even possible, but we, we had the support from, from management to, to give it a go. And that's really set us on a journey, which 
it didn't affect that project too much because it was too far down the construction process. But what it has done, every project that we've built since has had these non-financial elements calculated. So what I'm really hearing there is an emphasis on legacy, um, similar to the Olympics or Crossrail. Um, is this a trend, obviously, you're seeing on a day-to-day basis then, working within um, the industry? Very much so. I, legacy is, again, hugely fundamental. We're, we're hearing about natural capital and not depleting future resources of, of the future stakeholders of the earth. Um, but again, it shouldn't be at the end of a project. A good project nowadays, like HS2 or the Olympics, starts to bake it in at the very start. So it doesn't increase costs. It's maybe marginally changes the costs or changes how you how you focus on this. And again, other work that we've been doing around quantifying our, our impacts allows us to make smarter decisions earlier. That's a really, really interesting view, way of looking at smarter decisions. I like that. And um, we've heard examples in previous episodes of how parallel industries allow us to do that, learning from them. Um, are there any new business models or disruptive ways of thinking that can be taken from other industries or other ways of working and applied to um, major capital projects, Stuart? Like, what's mm. your view? Well, I think there's actually quite a lot of that cross-fertilisation happening at the moment. Um, and just to take um, the example of, of what, what we've been talking about in the context of capital projects, a lot of businesses are taking that idea of, of valuing their impacts and applying it to their corporate reporting or to product design. Um, so this is happening at the moment inside companies. I think um, more than perhaps it it would seem apparent um, because companies recognise it gives them a competitive advantage and therefore it's actually quite valuable information. But what we're also seeing is is this um, development happening in in more kind of open forum. Um, So organisations like the Natural Capital Coalition who are coming together of about 250 companies, academics and NGOs to really standardise how these sorts of impacts are measured and essentially accounted for. So I think we're moving towards a situation where business um, success can be judged not just by the financial value they create, um, but also um, the value they create for society as a whole. What's the impact from the client side, George? Yeah, um, I've really seen some, some interesting uh, models being developed and discussed. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts nowadays, and you know the, the discussion um, earlier on in this podcast series around Rolls-Royce and, and just how they've disrupted that whole model of, of um, their ability to, to sell a different type of product. This is something that I think could work for our, our turbines and instead of buying blades that we would have to ultimately decommission after 25 years, we could look at just leasing them or leasing a power. It's, it's revolutionary. I, I think that's a really good place to leave it. I really like that Rolls-Royce example. It is really a fresh way of thinking of and breaking into a established market in a disruptive manner. So great that you uh, took some inspiration from that. Um, For me, this discussion has really emphasized the need not to be afraid to put numbers to the intangibles that sit beneath sustainability, like job creation, visual impact, or the other ones that we discussed, and how value is really at the heart of any proposition. Um, So my thanks to you both, George and Stuart, for today. And thank you all at home for listening. We will be back again for more discussion and debate on all things innovation and technology soon. And in the meantime, should you wish to learn more about today's episode or any of the previous episodes, um, please visit pwc.co.uk forward slash reimagine or search PwC Total Impact. 
Please subscribe to the series to get all our latest episodes like the one George just mentioned. And don't forget to rate and review. All our past content is available online, so please check it out. And until next time, thank you all for listening.